Hello, I'm Jason Solomons. Seen any good films lately? This is the podcast where the stars and filmmakers tell us what they've been watching and making and which movies formed their life. Len had a profound effect on me because I was a teenager and, you know, I was 14 was that time and I was like angry and I channeled my anger and this was, you know, righteous anger and this was just a perfect sort of encapsulation of voice that I didn't know I had. That was Ruth Nager talking about La N, just one of many stories and recommendations you'll hear today from my guests, who are Ruth Nager, Oscar-nominated actress from Loving and now the star of Passing, a stunning new racial drama in which she appears alongside my other guest, Andre Holland, star of Oscar-winning Moonlight. And I've got another Oscar winner for you with documentary maker Chai Vasahely, who made the mountain climbing documentary Free Solo with her husband Jimmy about Alex Hanel, the free climber. She now creates The Rescue, a nail-biting, may I say breathtaking, reconstruction of the impossible rescue of those 13 Thai boys all trapped in the caves by rising water. So it's high-end stuff all the way on this packed show, and we'll hear about The Rescue, and about passing with Ruth Nager and Andre Holland after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. If you're listening to this as we make it, which is on October the 29th, 2021, then Last Night in Soho is in your cinemas now. I've been talking about this for a while, since I saw it back at the Venice Film Festival in September. And I think it's very much worth your Halloween while. A ghost story set in modern Soho, starring Thomas and Mackenzie as the modern-day London fashion school student, with Anya Taylor-Joy as a wannabe 60s starlet. As a wannabe 60s starlet in the flashback kind of portal sequences. And it's all directed by Edgar Wright, the best thing he's done for many years. It's got style, scares, some real heart, and it's all set in Soho past and present, making it an excellent London movie, many classics of which it pays homage to with visual references such as Peeping Tom, The Small World of Sammy Lee, Repulsion and Scandal, and music nods from The Kinks and Sandy Shaw, and of course, Petula Clark, here being done by Anya Taylor-Joy. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go. Sticking with that 60s vibe, there's a companion piece of sorts to Last Night in Soho with Quant, which is a a minxy little fashion doc directed by Sadie Frost about Mary Quant, who popularised the miniskirt, dressed and liberated 60s women in PVC Macs, bright tights and flat shoes, all while sporting Vidal Sassoon bob cuts and creating a fashion empire. It's bright, fun stuff, breezily told, and packed with star contributors such as Kate Moss and Dave Davis. English fashion has always been notoriously rebellious. Mary Kwan turned the miniskirt into a worldwide phenomenon. I think she started the miniskirt, didn't she? Youth at the time was about wearing something that old people didn't like. Oh, I can't say that I particularly approve of some of the stars. To Thailand now for the rescue, an absolutely 
breathtaking documentary about the famous rescue of the football team, the Wild Boars, who got trapped in a cave system as the world watched on and as the monsoon waters rose. My guest, Chai Vasaheli, knows all about gripping films. She made Free Solo. Uh, about the world's best free climber and that went on to win the oscar for documentary and she goes even further now into the rock face itself deep below to reconstruct the cave diving feats behind this remarkable story a story of when the world held its breath we didn't think it was possible to dive the children out we came up with the actual logistical plan i told him that's a horrible idea and then rick said what if it's the only idea We were brutally honest. We promised multiple fatalities. It's about controlling your emotions and your fear. Panic is death in the cave. My mind was on overdrive. My God, am I going to be good enough? If they die, it's going to tear me apart. If you don't die, everyone will die. So basically, the film reconstructs the story of the divers, the British divers who came to the rescue of these boys, Rick and John and uh, Andre, who was in Australia. And it gets them all together and they reconstruct it for us and tell us how they made it. But as a director, when you don't have much footage and you don't have the caves, I asked Chaiva Sahaley how on earth they all did it. There was no known footage um, from inside the cave. There were a few clips. You know, there was lots of press on the outside of the cave, but the divers always kept them at a distance. You know, I think they would actively run away from cameras. So it was always kind of the solution would have to be reenactments. And I have to say that like this is the first film we've made that we weren't present for the principal action. So the reenactments were more like demonstrations. And also no one saw what these divers did because no one could get back there. So it was a very important experience um, for Jimmy and myself. We went to Pinewood um, Studios because it was, it was October 2020, we're like the height of the pandemic, but most of the divers are British, so they were close by. And they showed us how they did it. And like, you know, from showing up in their real gear, and I'm like, no wonder the military was a little bit skeptical of you. <laughs> you know, Rick's stuff is, like, I mean, I was like, you surely by now you can afford a new wetsuit. Um, <laughs> they, st- they still got it. They even bought yeah. it to set. No, yeah, of course. He brought all this real stuff. They brought all the real stuff. I mean, and like his wetsuit's got duct tape on it. Like that's what it is. And like there are no knees left on it. And that's what they do. And they brought their real wellies, their real everything. I could imagine or try to sympathize, but I, until I actually watched them bind a real child's hands behind their back, bind their legs and push their head underwater, you know, it was hard for me to grasp like the true responsibility they were willing to take on. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I, I'm not even sure I knew that aspect of the story when I, until I saw your documentary. I mean, I knew they had to dive them out, but I don't think I knew that they were doing this drug thing, this sedating thing. Did they, did they didn't publicize that beforehand? Otherwise the world would have told them perhaps they're yeah, mad. They didn't publicize it beforehand, though the parents did know. And also it, like, it's just so ludicrous. Like, it, like, it's just, even now Rick was watching the film, you know, with me like a few weeks ago. And he's like, even now, like watching this now, I realized just how crazy this idea was what your film alerted me to was the gradations of kind of luck or spirituality which you put in there plus also the human endeavor because if we hadn't pumped the water out and hadn't sandbagged it then they wouldn't have had enough 
room to do that. But you know, you thought, is that futile? What if we hadn't done that bit? It's not. It all. It could only work because it worked in a way. Every single second uh, that they did it, and every single little bit of help that they had, kind of helped, kind of worked. And if, I guess one of those bits of that puzzle wasn't there, it would have all fallen apart. I mean, I think at any moment, and when you hear Rick and John talk about it, really at any moment they could have messed up. You know, it was that it had to be perfect mm. for two and a half hours each way. You know, and yeah. So you you rebuilt the cave and the diving scenarios in in Pinewood's famous water tank. <laughs> well, I don't know if I rebuilt the cave. So we inherited from National Geographic because they had a TV show about the cave, a 3D scan. Otherwise, we never would have been able to afford it. We had like just period. So we got a cave, like a set maker to make us a cave, right? And I was like, this is so amazing. It's based on the real 3D cave. We show up and the cave is basically like this big. <laughs> you know, it's like, I would say like five feet. Okay. And then Rick and John are like, oh, everyone was like, what? I was like, I don't, like, that's what we could afford. And then our underwater DP is walking around Pinewood and he's, he finds more cave. It was probably from a Michael Bay film. So, <laughs> he's just got loads that, riding him yeah. I mean we took that cave and suddenly we had three times as much cave but we didn't know if it was going to dissolve in the water like it was a whole thing what I love about documentaries is is there's always a sort of coda to them there's always an extra thing so are you in touch with the kids have you met up with these these kids what are they up to now I feel there's a where are they now story about all 13 of them so there's this right situation where one studio acquired the life rights the children and their families another one to the divers so I was not allowed to interview the children, but I did go, when I went to Thailand, I went and walked the whole cave. You did it? I, oh yeah. Oh my God, it was Thai. Terrified. I would never have uh, gone in there knowing what happened, even in the dry season. You know how they got me to go in? With chocolate. <laughs> they told me that none of the other directors had gone in. Yes, you're easy. <laughs> and Vern was holding my hand and Jeanette was holding my other hand and like and then the moment after five minutes you're like totally enchanted I get it this is like a beautiful enchanting adventurous place like to explore of course my kids would like it of course these children go but I then I also got to meet some of the children in Kojak and that was really meaningful to me and you know they understood that we had acquired Dr. Harris's footage of them being anesthetized so that was their first question to me can we watch it and I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to re-traumatize you. But of course, we have to honor what you say. So they watched, you know, the second half of the film, The Rescue, and then told me about some of their experiences. The Rescue is in cinemas and on National Geographic now. Also out in cinemas, before beginning residency on Netflix, is Passing, the directing debut of actress Rebecca Hall, and taken from a 1929 novel about two black women in 20s New York, who passed for white women to avoid segregation, crossing the colour line, it was called. They're played by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nager, who are both superb as old acquaintances who run into each other, and each knows the other one's secret as they take tea in a Manhattan hotel in a black-and-white film all about colour. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. Claire? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. 
Things aren't always what they seem. I'll be damned. Also starring in Passing is Andre Holland, such a star in Moonlight and in the Netflix show The Eddie. And we've got Ruth and Andre on this show talking about the making of Passing, which is one of the most stylish and thought-provoking films around at the moment. I caught up with them both during the London Film Festival to find out more about these actors behind such bold and beautiful performances. So when I met Ruth Nager, Ethiopian-born, irish raised Ruth Nager, I asked her if she watched any films as preparation for her role in Passing. And we also talked about some other big preparations upcoming to play Lady Macbeth opposite Daniel Craig on Broadway. I watch a lot of old-fashioned black and white films anyway, and I've always kind of gone, you know, there's always like a black person like in the corner, like waiting, you know, as a maid or a chauffeur, and you're going, I don't want to know about that person's lives. We're always being sidelined, and I think this is kind of like a, a redress, you know? And I actually think that was definitely part of Rebecca's M.O., and it's definitely part of my M.O., and I think it's definitely part of a lot of people I know, actors of colour's M.O., is to sort of make up for a lot of fucking lost time. Yes. But also now you're getting the chance to be parts that weren't black actors before. Um, you're about to do Lady Macbeth, am I right? Are you doing Lady Macbeth? I am, yeah. But I don't know that play very well. Or the history of performance of it, so... No, but I mean, really you've never done it before, presumably. No, I've never done it before. That'll be unique. Whew, yeah, I'm a bit scared, to be honest. But like, yeah. Why? The theatre's terrifying, because oh. it's, like, live. Like, people are like... You know, the thing is, you know, people go... You know, I think a lot of people go, why, you know, get asked these questions? How do you analyse? Is it, is it scared being in front of an audience? And people are like, oh, they're such silly questions. And I'm like, no, they're very valid, actually. <laughs> Learning lives is very difficult. I have to start months in advance. It's very hard. And the fear is excruciating. And it only gets worse. And you've got to do it again the next night. Every night. Every night. (laughs) I mean, I don't know why, but the thrill is... It's incomparable. He'll be all right, old uh, Daniel Craig. He's... Yeah, yeah, he knows what he's doing. Doesn't he? I think so. I've seen him in the theatre before, a long time ago. He was very good. Listen, he's a fine, fine actor... And, uh, I mean, great. Not like, he'll do. (laughs) But the thing is, what's great, he's not James Bond anymore. Yeah. But no, but you know what's brilliant about him playing Macbeth is that the idea that, see, Macbeth has to be charismatic, and I mean in the old-fashioned sort of sense of the kind of a leader, like almost like a religious leader and like a leading. These men have, like, I mean, it's still kind of um, present, I suppose, in war armies. You know, you need to be willing to follow this person to the death. And and Daniel Craig has that. Yes. He has that that charisma in buckets naturally. And then to see and we all adore him, you know, he's such a lovely personality and he's so you just get the feeling he's really genuine and truthful, you know, and I lo- I think people respond to that mm. than as sort of a slick kind of dude, you know? They really can see through that shit. But and so like to for him for cause Macbeth sort of disappoints is an understatement. For him to sort of be seduced by power yeah. is so devastating. And for, you know, to, for, to, to see Bond sort of go down a dark path, I mean, I'm, I'm desperately excited. Have you seen the new movie yet? Have you seen yes, it? Yes, I oh. saw it. I saw it. Um, um, in a, it was streaming in LA when it was being premiered here, and I loved it. I was in bits at the end, Good. a puddle, a big Good. puddle. Yes, because you could not see it before seeing him. <laughs> Well, I don't know if he... Would he mind? Oh, well, you'd have but to... I mean, I thought it was, you know, Kurt. He's but brilliant in it. He's brilliant anyway. in it, though. He's fucking... He's the best Bond. Yeah. 
you know. Yeah. I mean, I do love Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. But oh, I mean, you supporting the home guy there. Yeah, but I think he's just a really suave and lovely. You're in Paris, they found yeah. Pierce Brosnan. He's just so charming. But you know, Daniel Craig added sort of this kind of a groundedness and a depth and a real humility and a conflict. There's a conflict really? there, you know, definitely. And I'm sure there's a conflict with this kind of the historical sort of connotations of Bond being a sleazebag. What's the first film you saw in the cinema? Oh fuck, probably maybe The Little Mermaid or something. No, it must have been way before then. I can't remember. Yeah. I loved the cinema. I loved the trailers. I loved the smell of popcorn, even though I don't particularly like popcorn. Oh, just thrilling. I love video stores. Anything to do with the screen, I was just... I just thought, that's... Yeah, why, amazing. Love it. Want to do it. What film changed your life? Watching it or being in? Loving. Yeah. Being in and watching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to take Mildred up to D.C. to get married. Are you sure about that? By the power vested in me by the District of Columbia, I now pronounce you husband and wife. In here? What you doing in bed with that woman? I'm his wife. That's no good here. Len had a, a profound effect on me because I was a teenager and, you know, I was 14 was at that time and I was, like, angry and I channeled my anger and this was, you know, righteous anger and this was just a perfect sort of encapsulation of voice that I didn't know I had, but it was, you know, it really spoke to me and resonated with me. Beautiful choice, both loving, obviously, and, yeah. and Len. And if you could go to any film set ever, a film being made or a scene being made for a day or for the whole I shoot. I've already done it. Which one? I went to the amazing Sam Jackson and let me um, visit a Tarantino set. Which one? Forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put this in, Jason. <laughs> what's the one? What's the one with Jennifer Jason Lee? Because she was. In, so I think uh, the that, hateful eight. Hateful eight. Oh, yeah, and she was in. She was there, and, and the set was freezing because he wanted real breath. I, and I just should have said that probably. No. You had to put your phone in the box and everyone was so lovely and gracious and it was real focused and I was just like thrilled, thrilled. So thank you, Sam. That's you brilliant. Have to do that, you know. That is brilliant. So, I mean, yeah, that's like... You did it. You got any film posters on your wall? No. But did I? Hold on. No, I've got Miles Davis on my wall. Have you? From Birth yeah. Cool or...? No, no, he's standing in front of a red car. Look at all cool and handsome and suave and geniusy. Yeah. And his music is ferocious and beautiful and oh. I tell you who you look like. You look like his old girlfriend. Um, Betty Davis. Yeah, you look a yeah. bit like her. Um, listen, I have to go, but I could do this all day. I know, me too. Me too. I love it. I love pop questions. They're so fun. <laughs> yeah, I had to leave Ruth. In fact, to go and talk to Andre Holland who was in the next door room. And I began by asking him about the helpfulness of shooting the film where it was set, in Harlem. Being in Harlem, shooting in Harlem was, it's such an amazing place, you know? It's like, you know, you, you change a few signs and windows and, and move the cars out of the way and you're instantly, you know, in the 20s because, you know, it feels like a, a living museum in a way. Um, so that, that certainly helped us to kind of disappear into it. Is that a spot you knew, Harlem? Yeah, I used to live in Harlem for a while. When I first moved to New York, I lived up there. Uh, so I knew I know it quite well. Harlem changes, you know. I, I used to go in the 90s, and I've been in the 2000s. I haven't been for a while now. 
but my friends tell me it's changing really quickly. How did you feel about that, and how did, did you notice that? Definitely noticed it. Um, I live in Brooklyn now, so I haven't. I don't spend as much time in Harlem as I used to. It's far. It's yeah, far. It's a long way. Exactly. <laughs> it's a long way. But it, it has changed an enormous amount. I mean, obviously, gentrification has yeah. changed it, you know, and for for, the, for good and for bad. Mm-hmm. And the same thing's happening in Brooklyn, in my neighborhood. Yeah. But I just hope that that it, it can these neighborhoods can retain the sort of culture, the culture that, it, that they once had. Well, films like this help, and uh, Spike Lee, she's got to have it really nailed the, the gentrification problems in Brooklyn, I thought, the, the, the TV series. What's the film that changed your life, Andre? Really good question. You know, in a way, I think the film that changed my life was Moonlight. I have to say, that experience was so profound for me and so moving for me, and it was one um, that I think gave me confidence as an actor, that I, that I could have a career in cinema and made some of my best friends, you know, working on that project. And, and to see like the impact that it had in the in the world, and on the culture was uh, was incredible. So I think that one that one changed my life. If if I could take you to a movie set mm-hmm. back in time, Andre, mm-hmm. any movie set, any movie being made anywhere in the world, and you can go for the, the whole shoot or you can go for just a scene being mm-hmm. shot, where would you fancy going? I think I'd want to go to the set of The Wiz. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You know, with like a young Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, like all the like amazing actors who were on that one. It seemed like that was a set where people were having a lot of fun. So <laughs> I would love to have gone to that one. So I, I'm seeing you want to be in the ease on down the road yeah. moment. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Doing a little dance and for sure. Okay, Dorothy and Toto, seems like we're going to have to find our own yellow brick road. <laughs> He's on down. He's on down the road. There it is. (laughs) He's on down. He's on down down the road. Don't you carry nothing that might be a load. There it is! Dorothy! Look! Dorothy! Ta-da! Come on, Dorothy! Come on! Come on down, he's on down, he's on down the road. Come on, he's on down, he's on down the road. Don't you care? What's your, what's your favorite musical moment in, in any movie? And it doesn't have to be a musical mm-hmm. per se. It can be, you know, like when someone gets in the car and there's music playing on the radio. That can be what they call diegetic and non-diegetic. It can be, you know, use of music to go with that image in, in, in movies. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough. The first thing that comes to mind, again, I hate to, you know, I'm not trying to send myself flowers here, but I think Moonlight, you know, I think that, you know, in the diner scene when, that when you know, the, he opens the door and the little bell rings and then right away it, that song comes on. It's um, that you know one step. It's so beautiful and like so perfectly timed and it's such a beautiful track. I love that, I love yeah. that track and I don't even knew the track because of Most Deaf. Yep, because it's yep. Um, sampled in sampled in yeah. It's Miss Fat Booty. Yeah, and Your I music know- man, huh? Mm-hmm. All right. That's so and then to hear the Aretha, yeah. it's 
once I want a song. It's such a beautiful song, and it's just so perfect, like perfect for that moment. Yeah, and I and I didn't know when we were doing this, but when we were shooting that scene, that that was the track that he was going to be. I wasn't sure that that was the track he was going to be playing, and um, so when I saw it for the first time, I was like, "Oh, this guy, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so cool." I'm only one step ahead of your arms, one kiss away from your sweet lips. I know I can't afford to stop. What do you what do you watch? Have you seen any good films lately? Lately, we've been so busy with this, I haven't really had a chance to to see much, to be honest. Yeah, no, nah, not really. I've been doing I've been watching a lot of things for like as research for some things I'm working on. So a lot of like classic black films I've been watching. Oh, tell me, tell me. Well, like Claudine is a film that uh, that I watched recently. It's other film, A Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich, which is like a really obscure black film that uh, that I watched. Um, rewatched Sankofa, Haile Garima's film. Which one's that one? Sankofa. It's a film that Ava, actually, Ava DuVernay's company just released it. Yes. Re-released yes. it. Yes, I saw the re-release come out. Yeah, it's really Sankofa, dope. Yeah. Really dope. And then one of my all-time favorites, Killer of Sheep, Charles mm, Burnett's Charles film. Burnett. Yeah, yeah, I saw that again recently, so. Now, let me tell you, man. It's a one-to-five proposition offhand. Me and him face a dark day if we have to go before the match. Hey, man, look, I don't want to hear this. No, I don't want to hear this. Wait a minute. Look, the man, we're telling it to you. Mm-hmm. Well, look, man, you know somebody to keep their mouth shut? Some dope, man. And won't blush to murder? And you know more kind of people like that than I do. Who the hell told you I'd help you do away with somebody anyway? Friend of yours. Who? That don't make no difference, man. Say, look, man, we're gonna do the extra killing. All we want you for is unnecessary details. Just be in the background. Don't you know. wanna hear it. Why don't you let me borrow your Roscoe? And I don't keep no gun. When you make a film like Passing, like Moonlight, they're so historically important sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that a representation, an importance of representation? Yeah, I mean, I feel that with any with everything I do, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a you know a big movie or if it's a play somewhere, anything I do, anytime I do anything, I feel the weight of like, all right, what is this going to mean? Yeah. You know, how are my people being represented in this? How committed are the the sort of director or whoever's in charge of it to standing in the right place to tell our stories, to tell this story? So yeah, I feel that all the time. Mm. Yeah. I, I get that from your performances in the in the in the best way. You know, honestly, I would see you come on. I think there's a this is a man who knows what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he cares about what he's yes. doing. Who's trying to know what he's yeah, doing? Yeah, the soul in there that, that, yeah, that works yeah. for me. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't like being careless with it. You know, I feel like it's so important. You know, these images that we create, these stories that we tell, and I, I, I don't want to ever feel um, shame around anything I've done. I don't want to feel like I've done anything to denigrate uh, my culture. So, is that hard sometimes to yeah. f- to fight against? It's really hard. I think if you're gonna make, you know, if you can make movies that tell stories about black folks, you gotta love black folks, and and you know, a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so uh, it's it's not always easy. Ooh, but it's that hurts me to hear you say it. Well, it's true though. Uh-huh. I ain't lying. It's true. That's true. Yeah, I think a lot of people love black culture, love black music, love the, the aesthetics, you know, and and but to like really, really, really love black people and be curious about black people. You know, I think it's a it's a unique thing. Mm. Um, but for me, it's a necessary thing. 
for projects that I do. Have you ever fallen in love at the movies? When I first saw uh, Paris Blues, the old movie with Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll, when I first saw that, I was like, I might be in love with Diane Carroll. <laughs> I'm thinking you're in love with Diane Carroll. Oh my gosh, she's <laughs> extraordinarily beautiful and like such a good actor. And yeah, I had a little crush on Diane after that. There you go. <laughs> I get it from you. I like to walk. And I like the way you walk. And Paris is a city to walk in. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, it takes more than two weeks to see it, though. Can't you stretch your time a little? No, I have to go back to school. You go to school? Mm-mm, I'll start teaching next term. What's that? Notre Dame. You didn't even look. Well, I didn't think they'd moved it. <laughs> I guess you pointed it out to lots of girls from here. One or two. Mm-hmm. Maybe three. Well, it's lovely. So are you. And I've never said that to any of them before. Well, not more than one of them. Not more than one on this bridge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I had a teacher like you when I went to school, boy, yeah, I would have learned something. <laughs> I think you've learned enough. Not in school. Have you ever seen a location on film and you just thought, my God, I, I want to go there? What's your favorite mm. location? So many, I would say. I think, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is not like a single location, but as an actor, made me like want to go to all the locations. The Bourne movies. I love that, like, you know, they're going to be here. We're in, you know, Mauritius, and then we're in Berlin, and then we're here. That sort of, uh, that sort of a, a story is one that uh, made me a little bit jealous. Um, like, I want to have that experience. You want to be James Bond? Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's vacant. I hear. I hear it's vacant. But <laughs> and finally, if I can uh, say to you your favorite cinema, where's your favorite cinema? Or if not, like, you have one cinema and... Mm -hmm. Like the best screening you've ever been to. You're like, whoa. Wow. Two cinemas come to mind. Wow. One, in New York, there's a cinema called Metrograph, which I love. Have you been there? No, where's that? Oh, it's beautiful. It's in the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I should know this. Yeah, it's but it's a newer one. It's not a, It's not one that's been there for very long. And uh, some friends of mine like bought this space and like created this gorgeous, gorgeous cinema. It's really beautiful. So that's my favorite. And then maybe my second favorite, or a tie, uh, where I grew up in Alabama, it's a town called Bessemer. Mm -hmm. There was a theater called the Lincoln Theater, which uh, was what's called the Race House. So it was a place where black people could go and see films uh, during, you know, segregation. And it's a it's a cinema that my parents grew up going to. It was abandoned, has been abandoned for a long time. But my parents and I purchased this cinema together about five years ago, and are in the process of restoring it. So that is a, that is also my my favorite cinema. Well, that is an extraordinary story. Yeah. Very rarely you get such a great answer. So you're gonna what's it gonna be called? Well, as of now we're still calling it the Lincoln. That's still the plan. But that may change as we get closer to opening. And are your parents in, in the movie business too? No. They are now. Well they yeah, they are they are now. They are now. But no, they, they don't work in the in the in the music business. My father uh they both have retired, but my father worked at a uh a fencing company for many years. He was in sales and my mother worked at the steel mill for thirty six mm. years. So you know, hardworking, blue-collar folks, but they love art and love culture and, you know. Proud of you? Yeah, yeah, very proud. It's, you know, they introduced me to acting and to theater, so. Um, and let you do it is the big thing. For a yeah. blue-collar family, you say, I want to be an actor, and they come, come on, yeah, you know, get yourself yeah. a trade or something. Yeah, but they, they actually pushed me into it, you know. They insisted that I do it. They could see that I was interested in it, and mm -hmm. they're the kind of people that just are like, hey, whatever you want to do, we'll support you. 
long time. So, how 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 long is it going to be before we're we're at the? I'm coming for the you opening at the Lincoln. You be yeah, there. yeah. What are you gonna, what are you going to show? What's your first film at the Lincoln? Come on, I don't. Know You've yet. dreamt of this, Andre. I've dreamt of it. I've dreamt of it for sure, but I'm not. I'm not sure yet. It depends on how long it takes us to get it done. I think we're you know probably two years out, mm-hmm. but uh, so we'll see what's happening in the world. You know what? Point. I know someone who's writing a project, a great black project. Yeah. And he's writing, and he might direct, and he might produce, and he really could show it the cinema. You know what? That could be great. That could be great. <laughs> it'll be done by that time, yeah. so it'll be a great... Yeah. It's like timing. So you're writing, producing, distributing, exhibiting. <laughs> Everything. Everything. <laughs> Andre Holden, joy to see you. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. See you soon, my friend. Ruth Neger and Andre Holland, they're the stars of Passing, which is in cinemas and on Netflix. And that brings us to a close for this episode and indeed for this season of Seen Any Good Films Lately. There's a lot to be getting on with while we take a break for about a month before we come back and dive right into awards season. So you've got uh, Last Night in Soho to watch, Paris Blues, as recommended by Andre Holland with Diane Carroll, Certainly sounds like something I need to see. With Sidney Poitier and Paul Newman as jazz musicians in Paris. I've got to see that. Uh, And over the next few weeks, you'll have to make your mind up. uh, If Spencer is any good or a load of old cobblers, I suspect the latter. You'll have Mothering Sunday to be a bit... All right, over. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Arsene Wenger, Invincible, a documentary, which I'm actually in, if you look very, very carefully. I'll still be doing my Totally Wired radio show, so there'll be some coverage of those films on The Jason Solomon Show. And, of course, the ongoing delights of Monday nights are what's going to keep occupying me, succession, and curb your enthusiasm. Going old school and awaiting the new episodes each week. That's what I'm watching. So that's plenty to keep you busy to answer that eternal question. Seen any good films lately? I'll see you back here in December. So we'll go out with that other great musical moment that Andre Holland mentioned in Moonlight. The gorgeous Barbara Lewis and Hello Stranger. Goodbye. Hello Stranger It seems so good to see you back again How long has it been? It seems like a mighty long time My baby, It seems like a mighty long time